Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. I am here today with two people who are in my business. They're both reporters who I have an immense respect for, who have written a book that is just simply unputdownable. I immediately uh, emailed uh, about halfway through, but it only took me a few hours because I was ripping through it. I emailed James Stewart, the co-author of this book, along with Rachel Abrams, to say that this is an instant classic, okay? Unscripted, the epic battle for a media empire and the Redstone family legacy. Okay, so Sumner Redstone, head of Viacom and CBS. I had read about him. I knew just enough to get the surface of the news about, you know, but you never really could piece together what the deal was. He was having a fight with his daughter, Sherry Redstone, or maybe there was some conflict over the control of this company. And it was coming in in dribs and drabs. And finally, it's been consolidated into one book called Unscripted. And it is freaking juicy, man. It is like a 19th century novel, or it is like a serialized TV show. And it is, in fact, divided up that way into chapters, you know, seasons and episodes. And it reads like that. It is an incredible page turner. And it is by, uh, like I said, two extraordinary reporters. And James Stewart uh, is a hero of mine and a legend. Uh, author of many books, including Den of Thieves, which was one that I remember reading and loving. Uh, welcome to the program, James Stewart and Rachel Abrams. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. This book is like a cross. I know I'm raving, okay? But it's like a cross <laughs> between Succession and White Lotus. It's like subplots within subplots. You got sex, greed, extremely cheesy, scheming, amoral characters just basically all <laughs> over the place. And, uh, you know, at the center of it is Sumner Redstone. Maybe we could just start by establishing the uh, profile of the main character here. Sumner Redstone, this sort of like storied media mogul, very brilliant man with like as many brilliant kind of powerful guys as um, got all kinds of um, troubling behaviors and, and tastes. But maybe you could just tell me, when this book begins, where are we with this with Sumner Redstone? You know, the, the arc of the story really begins when, when Sumner Redstone's daughter, Sherry Redstone, uh, who was trying to some extent to detach herself both from the family drama and the corporate intrigues of her father, was forced into the, into the business by her father's increasingly erratic behavior. I mean, as you say, he created this incredible media empire. He snapped up things that nobody thought he'd ever get. He started out running drive-in movie theaters. He built it into a theater chain. He bought CBS. He bought the Paramount Movie Studio, which was kind of the crown jewel of his acquisitions. He had all these cable channels. He was a brilliant man. But late in life, you know, he kind of descended on Hollywood when he was 76 years old. But many people would be kind of stepping out of the limelight. No, he was just getting started. And it was almost like after years of working constantly and putting all this together, he indulged himself in women uh, in his interests, and, and at the same time, his physical health and his mental state were deteriorating. So when the story really opens, he's living in his mansion with two, two live-in companions. I guess that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Who are scheming to take control. That's right. Um, and just to give people a sense of like what this might look like, uh, you, you describe his – maybe this is his bedroom or just his living quarters, but he's got like a stock ticker over his bed. 
<laughs> yeah, he's got a stock ticker over his bed. And also one thing that Sumner Redstone was very famous for, particularly among media reporters that ended up visiting him at his mansion, was a giant fish tank. He was known for, for being a real active uh, fish connoisseur at his home. So these, these are two sort of notable descriptions from inside the mansion that are kind of legendary. Yeah. And he's surrounded by, like, you know, nurses and aides, and he's got lawyers coming and going. And as a part of his sort of late-life lust adventure, uh, he's like this sort of, like, uh, rutting goat uh, who has, like, all these various uh, women brought in. And, and, you know, uh, and two of them, Manuela Herzer and Sidney Holland— both at one time or another seem to be dates of his in some way, uh, but they end up becoming kind of quasi-caretakers and uh, really, I mean, I don't know, I, let's just say alleged, uh, you know, they put all kinds of legal caveats on it, but they seem like grifters basically and they've come in to like take control of his life and download his millions. Is that uh, fair? Yeah, I think that's a, probably a fair characterization. <laughs> I mean, let's 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 be... Um, you know, honest here that this is a, shall we call it a career path that has, you know, has been, yeah. been throughout history is it, this is a Hollywood version, but, uh, the idea of, you know, highly attractive women latching on to an aging rich man is, uh, not a, exactly a new story, but it's, it's true. At one point, uh, Sumner claimed to be in love with Manuela Herzer. He, proposed marriage to her, and she turned him down, although she later said that was the biggest mistake of her life. Then through a matchmaking service, he met Sidney Holland, and they had a whirlwind courtship. She's soon wearing this nine-carat diamond ring, and she moved into the mansion. And then somewhat bizarrely, Manuela was renovating her house, paid for by Sumner, needless to say. And while the renovation was going on, she moved in too and just kind of stayed. And there they were, Sumner, surrounded by, the, of course, the staff that you're talking about, all of whom were witnesses to what was going on, and then not one but two live-in companions. And during the time this is happening, his private life is making headlines. These are the, but not the kind of headlines that end, end up in the Wall Street Journal. He's making headlines that end up in page six, and it's becoming an increasing distraction. And people around him, including his daughter, are becoming increasingly nervous that his private life is having an increasing influence over, you know, his ability to govern. And there are, you start seeing these, you start seeing basically these stories about his sexual escapades. Um, and, and it starts to become an increasing distraction, basically, for anybody that cares about you know, the company stock price. So so that's also happening in the background. Yeah. Well, that's what, what's beautiful about this book is it's sort of poised between, you know, things you'd read in the vaunted Wall Street Journal and things you'd read in page six. And it kind of bring it ties them together in a way that makes it understandable because, you know, these corporate intrigues are all human stories at the, at the end of the day. You know, you can talk about money and valuation and prices and strategies, but at the end of the day, you're dealing with these, you know, Sumner Redstone, this, uh, this French CEO that he's got loyalty to for reasons that are uh, increasingly not comprehensible. And then he's also being advised by, you know, all kinds of people that shouldn't be advising multi-billion dollar corporations, <laughs> including these two women, right? Um, so, you know, you guys both were reporting on this for the New York Times, right? And But from different angles. Is that correct? And and that's how the the genesis of doing this book? Yeah, basically, uh, you know, Jim had been working on 
a story that involved Les Moonves, basically some of the behind-the-scenes boardroom action that had led to his his exit from CBS. And at the same time, I had gotten a tip from somebody that was in a really good position to know about what those boardroom discussions were. And an editor at the time suggested that, you know, at some point I talked to Jim and and, it, you know, I walked by his desk one day. I was actually heading out, and he was still there. And I, I stopped by, and I thought, well, now's, now's a good, as good a time as ever. And we just we both realized that we were working on this Les Moonves stuff from different angles, and we had very complementary sources. Um, and so it just kind of took off from there. And, it, and very quickly we realized that we were going to have access to – uh, you know, between the two of us, a treasure trove of text messages and emails and confidential documents. And those led to a couple really great stories in The Times. And we realized pretty quickly that those stories really could, didn't capture everything, that there really was a book here. So that's kind of how all this came together. Yeah, well, like I said at the top, there's like um, those of us on the outside of all this, we're seeing these stories and dribs and drabs and not completely being able to put it all together and see what the context was. And now that I've read it, I understand why. It's like Byzantine, right? You know, Joe, we kind of backed into some of the most interesting parts of the story because, as Rachel pointed out, we were focusing on the the boardroom drama, the ouster of Moonves, what we called the sort of collision of the Me Too movement with the corporate boardroom, which all of which is incredibly fascinating. But I, what I didn't realize at the time is that we had to back up from all of that to the point I mentioned before where, you know, Sherry was forced into the bizarre situation in the mansion. And that was partly because in addition to all this other stuff we got, we, we were able to gain access to affidavits, testimony, transcripts from the, the staff and the nurses of the mansion, which gave an incredible window into what was going on there. So it was only later that I kind of recognized the bigger arc of the story. And you, I, I'm so happy you said there's kind of like a novel because it, it is nonfiction, but I don't think I'll ever, that we'll ever have is the evidence and the reporting and the material to weave a novelistic story the way we were able to do with this one. Yeah, as I was reading it as a reporter, I was just like, where did all this come from? I mean, these text <laughs> messages between one of the two women, Sydney Holland, and her other boyfriend on the side who lives in oh, Arizona, yeah. right? It's it's incredible. And by the way, ugh, these people are just really uh, horrid. And, uh, you know, uh, she's downloading all this money from Sumner and using it to kind of sponsor her boyfriend's, you know, fiancé on the side and a lifestyle in Arizona. He knows nothing about it. And they buy a giant um, black crystal of some kind. Do you can you remember, can you describe what what this was about? <laughs> oh my God! What was it? Was it tourmaline? Was it onyx? It was basically something that a Malibu psychic had told Sydney Holland to buy a lot of. And in fact, when I I ended up spending a very memorable Memorial Day weekend with George Pilgrim, and he still had a lot of these stones, and he showed me, and I think he had to like arrange them under his bed in some way. But yes, a lot of uh, a, a lot of characters in our book seem to be influenced by um, otherworldly uh, influences. Let's just say, yeah, yeah. He had to put those black. I believe the black crystals placed under the bed were supposed to increase his quote unquote sexual potency. Which, yes, <laughs> which doesn't really <laughs> seem to have been in question. From yeah, <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. Well, the funny thing about it is 
this guy, uh, the the boyfriend, George Pilgrim, so he he had his own kind of weird prehistory before he arrives into the narrative, which you got, I think the whole book opens with him maybe. Um, and he's sort of like uh, got a criminal past. He's sort of like a handsome actor who doesn't really amount it to much. And he kind of backs into this whole thing. Um, maybe because he's got access to a laptop. Uh, it's, this is, it gets pretty <laughs> deep. He is a reporter's dream source because if, you know, for un- any of the journalists listening can really appreciate this. He is so, he was shameless, you know? He just said anything yeah. that was on his mind. Yeah. And that's the most perfect person to talk to because they answer all your questions. Um, you know, we were mindful that this man had gone to prison uh, for fraud. Uh, but, you know, he he endeavored to answer them honestly, as far as we could tell. I mean, we were really careful about backing up everything that he said. You know, there were often people who could attest to what he was saying who because they'd been there contemporaneously. But also, as you mentioned, he he, he had a computer full of files, text messages, pictures, um, emails. He had so much stuff to corroborate his story that it was really a dream. Um we didn't intend, and Jim has a good story about this, we did not intend for him to take over the beginning of the book, but um, but Jim, do you, want, do you want to explain how we, you decided to, uh, we decided to do that? <laughs> well, first I want to give Rachel credit. She makes it sound so easy, like you just show up and George tells you everything. No, other, other people had spoken to George, but somehow, you know, Rachel went out there, she spent uh, a whole Memorial Day weekend, and then she extended her stay, and George is, you know, thanks, I think, to her, he he handed over this unbelievable, I mean, it wasn't just his memory, it was his texts, all of his emails, photographs. So, so yeah, so all this incredible information was rolling back. And, you know, our deadline was somewhere off in the distance. I'd actually started writing, and we started it in a completely different place. And I was starting to, like, in my own mind, get a little bit annoyed. I was saying to myself, you know, this guy, George, is taking over the story, and I was kind of annoyed because it didn't fit into my little prearranged plan. And then one day I woke up and said, wait a minute, let George take over the story. There's a reason he's taking over the story. He yeah. set the whole plot in motion. So I threw out about 100 pages and I started all over. Wow. Wow. Well, that was a big decision, but it turned out to be a good one. And um, I, I will just say that um, as an aside, the way the book is written is it's very tightly plotted and tightly written, and it and it really pulls you in and takes you on the trip. And the, you know, it doesn't um, you know one of the fears when you're a layman uh, who who doesn't want to read too much about the business side of it is you're very tight with the business stuff and you explain it very clearly and you kind of like are able to get through and stay on the human story. Right. And it really turns out to be that way. It's like even the board members are like these, you know, they're either old friends of Sumner's or people he can control because really the board is all at his behest. Right. He's the all powerful Oz in this whole thing. And meanwhile, his awareness and his ability to communicate is like a flickering thing towards the end, right? Sometimes people will come in and say, this guy's out of it and totally a vegetable. Next day, somebody will come in and he'll be able to call his ex-girlfriend a quote-unquote fucking bitch, right, to a, <laughs> to a, in, a in a deposition, right? Um, the different fiefdoms he's got here are Viacom and CBS, right? And what, what's the name of the CEO of Viacom? Philippe Domont. Yes. So Some he's people, sort of like... He, he is French. He was originally French, and so, um, and he used the French pronunciation. Right. And he's sort of got Sumner wrapped around his finger for reasons. So Sumner trusts him. 
right, to run the ship for him. And on the other side, he got Moonves running CBS. And the second half of the book really takes you into uh, the cascade of, of the Me Too movement and the origins of it. And Rachel, you were sort of there for some of the origins of this reporting and into Moonves's you know, role in all of this. And it sort of begins with this actress, uh, Ileana Douglas, who we know. Is she the first person that we learn about in terms of accusing Moonves of having of sexual misconduct in the past? Well, I think what happened first, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, but what what happens is that the New Yorker comes out with two stories um, at different points in time. And one of them, I think they each have six women accusing Moonves of sexual harassment. And I can't remember who chronologically comes first. But basically what was happening is that uh, um, Moonves has has been kicked out of CBS and CBS has to figure out, can we fire this guy for cause, basically? And what Jim and I ended up learning is that uh, is that it, you know, everybody might have thought that the New Yorker was the reason, you know, that he, that Moonves is just the next guy to have a public shaming and get kicked out of a company. And Jim was the first person to get wind of the fact that no, it actually wasn't as much the New Yorker stories. It turns out that there was this kind of Z list manager that no one's ever heard of named Marv Dower, who had a client that he was yeah. leveraging against Moonves because basically he remembered that many, many years ago he had an actress named Bobby Phillips. Who had uh, who had had a meeting with Moonves and had a horrible experience, and then Harvey Weinstein breaks, and all this this cascade of Me Too stories starts, and this guy Marv realizes that maybe he can get something out of Moonves by pretending to Moonves that this woman's about to come forward and, you know, you know, let's let's keep her happy. Let's keep her quiet. And so Jim, this is this is when Jim and I start pairing up because Jim has heard pieces of this and I start getting information about this. And so what we uncovered partially in The New York Times, but in much in a much fuller way in our book, is that it's actually Moonves's attempt to keep this woman silent and his efforts to cover up those attempts that really sealed his fate at CBS. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Marv Dower, I mean, he he tries to get some roles for her, right? Or or he, he tr- yeah, he tries to leverage it by getting her roles. Ooh. You know, I mean, <laughs> as as reporters, I know we deal with like uh, you know, people, you know, occasionally you deal with uns- unseemly characters. Uh, but this is all of these people are unseemly, but they, you know, you keep being surprised by a, yet another one. Well, you know, again, one of the incredibly interesting things is that we got all of the text messages, and emails between Marv Dower and Les Moonves. I mean, it's an unpre- for me, unprecedented yeah. real time look at what was going on as he's like squeezing Moonves, who knows a difficult situation. And, you know, it's an, it's incredibly amazing. But, you know, again, to go to Rachel's point of what did Moonves is, he testified to the lawyers that he'd only had three or four contacts with uh, Dower. But we got, and they eventually got, 400. They were, like, talking every day. Yeah, yeah. You guys must have turned to each other occasionally and just said, can you believe this? I mean, that must have been happening, like, every 10 minutes or something. I mean— I'm always struck by like a guy like Mes- Les Moonves, who's like handsome, glamorous CEO, richest, you know, one of the richest heads of a network in the history of the business. You know, just how just primitive these people are. You know, just like they they have they're sophisticated on the surface, and they have sophisticated tastes, or I don't know if uh, how you want to judge their taste, but they're 
uh, you know, uh, when they get into these desperate situations, backed up against the wall, and he thinks he's going to get taken down. You know, next thing you know, he's like having 400 text messages with like a fourth rate agent. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, here's a shocker, uh, or at least it was to me. You know, the world that Sherry Redstone was forced into and stepped into was, even though it wasn't, didn't happen that long ago, was, you know, a throwback to, you know, decades of before the Me Too era when these moguls and powerful entertainment people do whatever they want. I mean, Moonves had someone on the CBS payroll sitting in the office out, outside of his whose part of his job was to administer oral sex to him whenever he wanted it. And he testified about this to the lawyers investigating. I, I mean, you know, so I called Rich and I said, I, do you believe this? And, you know, and again, we were working on this during the pandemic and I'm so happy I had a co-author because I didn't have anybody else to talk to. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I call, or Rachel would call me and we'd say, oh, my God, this is so unbelievable. I was just so I was so happy I had somebody to share a lot. And again, when Rachel was out in Arizona getting all this stuff from George Pilgrim and, you know, calling up, I, you know, again, it was just, oh, my God, my, you know, my jaw was open. Rachel, you know, as a woman, you know, from the female perspective, like having to hear about all of this and just, I mean, you must be used to it. Maybe you're hardened to it a little bit, but like, you know, were you nonetheless like continually shocked and appalled by, you know, the depravity of, uh, of these powerful, even not even powerful, some of them men, but, you know, uh, you know, um, I, I should say nothing shocks me anymore, but, um, but, uh, no, I, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like this book really played to both of our strengths in a way, because, you know, it's not like Jim has not spoken to women who have been victims of sexual misconduct. And it's not like I haven't done corporate investigations before, but I think what we did was we both realized that, like, there were certain people that might be more receptive to Jim, and there were certain people who would be more receptive to me. And that this was a inherently, we realized from the very beginning, much like succession, this is a human story. And the best thing that we could possibly do is just try to relate to people, um, you know, from wherever they're coming from. So was I shocked and appalled? Not really, because, you know, we're... Because fundamentally, these these are very human, flawed, three-dimensional characters, and that's what makes them so interesting. You know, I think it would be much less interesting if we were saying, oh, Sumner Redstone, what a monster. Nobody could possibly relate to that. Nobody understands it. But it's much more interesting to see him as a an increasingly infirm, philandering uh, person who's, who's who, as it, it turns— good to his daughter and it turns not good to his daughter. I mean, I, I don't know. I, just, I, I think we both looked at these people and took them in their entirety and saw how interesting they were and, and maybe were a little bit less focused on the more salacious aspects, although they they did make for interesting phone calls. Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, do we know what Les Moonves is doing today? It doesn't seem like he's doing too much very publicly, you know, a little, I can't remember exactly how long after he left CBS, he did set up an LLC somewhere in Los Angeles in an office building. But as far as I, I haven't really heard of him doing anything 
publicly, and I think he's sort of keeping a pretty low profile. I mean, there, we've talked to people who have seen him out at, you know, a memorial service here and there, but uh, he, I don't think that he is being embraced back in Hollywood or media uh, with, you know, open arms, you know, people offering him to do big projects. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's keeping a low profile, although I've heard from quite a few people in Hollywood that they, they you know, they're still friends with him. And I've had people tell me things like, um, you know, well, you know, I don't really know what happened to him and these women, but, you know, he was very good to me early in my career. And I'd, I'll never forget that. I mean, he was very well liked and he did advance the careers of many people. And, you know, many people have told me if he just, you know, kind of keeps his head down a little longer, uh, he'll, you know, he'll be back. I did wonder after reading about all the vile things that Sumner Redstone did and that Les Moonves did, whether these people are redeemable. You know, would anybody ever have Les Moonves over for dinner ever again? Can he re-enter polite society? What do you guys think? I don't think that we're quite far enough away from Harvey Weinstein to see the redemption of some of these people yet. You know, I, I, I'm not, I, it's a really interesting question. And I feel like it's actually two questions. One is, is it possible? And the next one is, do they deserve it? And I feel like, is it possible? That one, I, I think, is an easier question to answer because with time and space, many scandals are forgotten. And um, and I think you just see that play out over and over again in Hollywood. You know, everybody loves a redemption story, right? And maybe it's not possible for Weinstein, but maybe it's possible for some of these other people where, as Jim said, they've got friends who think, well, I don't really know what happened. Or, you know, like, give it enough time and space, and are those people going to be in a position where they think, okay, I can offer this guy a movie deal and it's not going to come back to bite me? That seems likely to happen with some of these characters that have been really felled by the Me Too movement. But it's not... I don't think there's been enough time and distance to answer that yet. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I will say uh, on behalf of Les Moonves, I know it, it upsets him. I've heard from many people close to him to be compared to Harvey Weinstein. And while his, uh, his misconduct is pretty severe, he's stressed the point that it all happened before he married Julie Chen. And she is very well liked and has staunchly stood behind him. And so I think that is is going to play a significant role in if he ever does, you know, make a comeback. Yeah, yeah. Your book, in a way, it's about all these specific characters, but it also is about the passage, a generational passage or arrival of these old school, thorny old school characters into this modern age. Right. And be, and they're blowing up all they're getting blown up all over the place because these behaviors are no longer acceptable. And it's a little bit um, kind of a, a dramatic explosion when these guys think that they're still living in the old world. <laughs> right. And yes, uh, I, uh, I was just going to say that I was just going to agree with you and say that this book is really the collision of the Me Too movement and corporate governance. And you and you really see in real time because of all the reporting that we were able to do, all the text messages, the private documents, all of this stuff. I don't think that either Jim or I could think of another example where you get to see how a company uh, run by people from a different era is responding to a crisis in real time. And it's a crisis that's very much of our time. It's the Me Too movement. It's how it's Black Lives Matter. It's how corporations are struggling to respond to consumers in a way that's meaningful. And it's being run by people who did not grow up with that. And 
because of all the documentation we were able to get, we were able to see sort of the real life panic, which you just really don't get in a narrative nonfiction business book very often. So, you know, that's one of the reasons we were so excited to come on and talk to you about it. Yeah, well, there was a lot of moments where I was like, in my mind, thinking about some of these people, I was like, stop texting. Stop (laughs) texting. You are old and dumb. Why are you doing this? Um, That's a good point. I was I was surprised that some of them of their generation were so quick to turn to texting. Yeah, but I just second yeah. what, what Rachel said, you know, again, the, it, the generational gap and the gender gap is not it's the executives, it's the board members, it's the outside lawyers investigating them. Uh, and then you, you do see in the book towards the end, more women are coming on the scene, the board's becoming somewhat more diver- diverse probably too soon to know how big of an impact it's going to have that can only get better. Right. Yeah. Well, one thing that uh, really struck me a little detail that really cued me into like how dramatic of a gap there was between the Sumner Redstone state of mind and the state of mind of the rest of the world (laughs) that was coming into being at that time was that uh, part of their interest in dating all these women, like sometimes a third their age, uh, and then flaunting them around at different public events. He's trying to impress, and you name them, Larry King and Robert Evans. And I just had to laugh out loud at that moment. It was like, that's what Sumner Red said. He's like trying to like, you know, make his buddies jealous or whatever, or like let them know that he's as virile, you know. And they're all guys that could, you know, plausibly be in, an, uh, you know, in a, a retirement home somewhere. And and in fact, he ends up being more or less retired in his own retirement home with nurses and he's, you know, getting fed through a tube, right? And yet still trying to control uh, an empire. It's just, it's remarkable. Well, you know, that's a good point, Joe, because it, it did strike me as well that in that in that circle of Hollywood power, the media world, who knows what was really going on? Well, actually, we do in some cases know what yeah. was going on. But the perception that you had these beautiful women at your beck and call and were having this active sex life was more important than the reality. It was about establishing your bona fides and, as you say, impressing your fellow aging moguls. That's right. Well, that goes back to my other point about how primitive this whole thing is. You know, at the end of the day, these guys are like, you know— fancy knuckle-dragging cavemen who are trying to get all the money and the power. I mean, it it tells you something about, like, how... I mean, the takeaway from the book for me was, like, wow, money and power turns people into awful, very weird uh, creatures, right? It can really twist you up. It really uh, is a... In a way, when we talked about the 19th century novel, it kind of also is a a um, illustration of the kind of um, way that money and power and greed twists one's soul and, you know, turns people into a, a degrades them and dehumanizes them. Yeah. You know, another, another point that a small detail, but I think emerges is how money cures almost any issue. Again, you mentioned, you know, Sidney Holland and Wella Hertzer uh, and everything they did. I mean, they were sued by the Redstones for elder abuse and yet, they have so much money. They walked away with at least $150 million between the I two of them. And now Amazing. they're on the boards of museums, of charities, and their bios all say, oh, they're world-renowned philanthropists. I mean, really? 
It, yeah. You know, the, it just all gets kind of swept under the rug. And these prestigious institutions, they're only too happy to take their money and close their eyes to what happened before. Well, it's interesting because your book's called Unscripted. And it's sort of playing on the idea that, well, obviously they're in the entertainment business and you couldn't script this. But yet <laughs> it's almost as if Sumner Redstone financed a live action soap opera of his own, right? <laughs> and everybody – it was all money, right? It was everybody's getting a piece of the money and acting badly. And it's just um, – the money finances the poor behavior. Everybody <laughs> in this book is out for themselves, Everybody in yeah. this book wants something from yeah. somebody else. Every, everybody's just willing – everyone is willing to throw somebody else under the bus to get what they want. And I think that sometimes people think of business books as being about, as you said, the stock price or the corporate governance or – people think of business books as perhaps being about business and money and stock price and all those things. But really – Business often comes down to people and their greed and their ambition and what they're willing to do for it. And this book really illustrates that not just within the boardroom, but also within the home, which, uh, you know, this is a story about a family. Um, I think that's one of the reasons people are so drawn to succession. And I certainly believe it's one of the reasons people are going to be drawn to this story. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is called Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. I couldn't put it down. I love it. It's so juicy. It's so well done. It's a stone-cold classic. It's written by James Stewart and Rachel Abrams, who are like uh, the best of the best. And I'm grateful that you guys came on uh, to Inside the Hive to talk about it. And uh, I'm sure it's going to hit the bestseller list any second now. So congratulations. <laughs> thank well, you so thank much. You. Thank you, Joe. Pleasure. Pleasure. 